Well, good morning. It is uh, great to be with you. This is my first Sunday morning in um, in the year 2022 <laughs> to be with you. Uh, um, some of you may know I've been uh, ill for the last few weeks, and God has really just taken care of me, and I'm just so glad to be here. Um, over the, the course of this month, we've had uh, several special speakers. That was not because of my illness. We couldn't have planned that well, but the, uh, uh, we, we, uh, I was taking about a month off to have a, a reading sabbatical and really prepare for this year and the things that God wanted to do. And I just want to say uh, how grateful I am for the for the messages that have been brought this year. They've been phenomenal, top-notch. We had Pastor David open the year and then his father scott took the next week and then last week we had ryan denton who is our newest missionary that we're supporting real quick note um ryan's written several books and uh, on our resource shelf out there we've put one of them out we have probably about eight copies um so first come first serve and if you want to know more about what what it means to share the gospel um in in a biblical way then that's a great book for you to read it's called even if none and so we'd love to have you grab a copy of that and read that and then uh this week um is a really special week for me about a little less than a year ago um we had a family come into our church that um i immediately connected with these guys they they are um i, I liked that um Jared was somebody who took the Bible, and, and this was reflected in his wife and his daughter, that took the Bible and the truth of God's word and his gospel very, very seriously, and at the same time did not take himself too seriously. And that's been a kind of a fun combination. Jared and I, over the last year, have become uh, really fast friends um, based on uh, just our, our love of the church and, and some shared interests in Puritan theology and things like that. And, and, um, I love visiting with Jared and, and, um, he's had opportunities. He's one of our, part of our teaching team for Wednesday nights. And, um, and, uh, beyond that, we've seen him just with an incredible, um, servant's heart that he, he brings Vernon, who most of you know, 97 years old to church every week that Vernon's able to come. And just really has been a servant to our church. Uh, many of you in this congregation have gotten books just that he wanted you to have and uh, that he thought would be helpful to you. And, and that's been a real blessing to me and Pastor Dave, Pastor Paul, and, and um, to watch that and his commitment to um, just the discipleship of our church. And so um, when we were planning this month, we thought that it would be very appropriate to have Jared come and share with you on the purity of worship. And so I'm going to ask you to go ahead and come, Jared, if you guys would welcome him as he comes. And um, I'm going to I'm going to ask all of you to stand so I can read the text of Scripture for his message today. Um, this is uh, from Leviticus chapter 10. Verses one through three, and if you are, if you need a Bible, there's a blue Bible in the seat in front of you, and that can be found on page fifty-one in that Bible. And it's like I said, it's Leviticus ten, chapter one through three. Uh, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible, take that one; it's our gift to you. Um, this is what the Bible says: Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it. And laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. 
Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Thus says the word of the Lord. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to learn what it is that you've revealed in Scripture, um, that it means to sanctify your name. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy in our lives, that where we failed to sanctify you appropriately, as you have instructed, Lord, that you have been very graceful, graceful with us. Lord, we thank you uh, for the opportunity this day to analyze those things that you've revealed and we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just open up our hearts and minds to the truth, truths that you've, that you've laid out in the Scripture for us, and that we would humble ourselves before you, not to look at this through the lens of our own experience and previous history in church, but from what you've told us in Scripture and how our lives should reflect this in action. Lord, we just thank you for your mercy and your grace and your love, and we just, we're here to sanctify your name this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys may be seated. <clears throat> So this is, this is a heavy topic. Um, it's not one to be taken lightly. I think that most real theological issues, you know, some, sometimes they can, some are lighter than others, all are serious. But when it comes to the worship of God, I'd like to just make a note, to have you guys make a mental note, that when you study the history of the church, and when you look at the history of God commanding worship, there is a string of bodies more than you and I can count in relationship to the wrong worship of God. I don't really know of anything in Scripture that God takes more seriously than the sanctification of His name the right way. And I can assure you that in Scripture He has outlined a right way and a wrong way to hallow Him. Okay, and So today, we've picked a very well-known verse one that is probably one of the most serious examples that we see in Scripture from Leviticus 10, 1 through 3, where Nadab and Abihu are offering worship to the Lord at the beginning of the consecration of the priesthood. And we see a tragic set of circumstances unfold that result in an instantaneous demise by the hand of God Himself. Now, in 2022, this is not a verse that you hear preached from a pulpit very often because it most people today would try to paint this as sort of something that God might have been too harsh with. So what we're going to do in an, in an exegetical fashion, in the time that we have okay, allotted, we're going to squeeze as much as we can from this scripture that God has revealed, not only directly in this scripture, but in other places. And we're going to walk through it methodically. And hopefully, I probably have too much here uh, that we, we won't be able to get into. But if nothing else, it will be a proper introduction to the subject and maybe give food for thought as we start to analyze our own hearts and worship. So I'm going to read this passage again. Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and they put fire in it. They laid incense on it. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who were near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. 
So, there's a lot of history, there's a lot of lead up to the consecration and creation of the priesthood that was supposed to uh, be in place as Aaron and Moses grew old and eventually died. God was establishing a system that it would allow for the priesthood to continue. This was important. Not only was this important, but it was also very exciting. Because the Israelites had come out of Egypt. God was establishing that He was their God and they were His people. And He was giving them a direct path into the future on how to appropriately, appropriately worship Him and creating an avenue by which He could still interact with them. So, on this day, right, uh, Nadab and Abihu had just finished their consecration, which had taken days and days and days. It was a methodical process. And it was their first day on the job. This was day one for Nadab and Abihu. This was the very end of the consecration. They had just been, this is their first act of worship before the Lord in front of all the people. This wasn't happening in front of a few. This wasn't secret. The entire nation of Israel had gathered together for this, this monumentous occasion. God establishing the priesthood. And they offered incense with fire that had not been appointed by the Lord. And the fire of God's wrath broke out upon them, killing them instantly where they stood. Not only in the sanctuary, but in front of everybody who was there watching. This was a tragedy of epic proportions. It unfolded before all. Aaron, a called and holy man before God, watched God pour out his wrath upon his two sons at a moment where it shouldn't have happened. And at a moment that should have been joyous, Aaron was under, understandably and exceedingly troubled. And Moses told Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke. I will be sanctified in them that draw near me, and before all the people I will be glorified. So fire first came down as a mercy. When the fire first came down to the altar and consumed the sacrifice, God had directly given that fire. If you go back in Leviticus and you read you know, the, the, the previous nine chapters, you'll see where God was actively involved in this process the entire time. God had actually provided the fire for the altar. And here you have men standing before the altar that offer a strange fire. They're killed instantly. And part of the drama of this story is that the holy and called man of God that was there with Moses, Aaron, these were his two sons. This was a proud moment. This was a proud moment for all that were there. And this man watched his two sons killed by the one that he served and the one that had also given him dignity in this process and established him. Not only was Aaron called by God to be there, but his sons had been called by God to be there. They weren't Aaron's choices. They were God's choice. And here on their first day, the first act of worship, God takes their lives with what seems to us to be the tiniest infraction. This was a tragedy. And it vexed the soul of Aaron. Now, before we move into that, let's just ask ourselves, Who were these two men? Nadab and Abihu. Who were they? Well, as I just said, they were the oldest sons of Aaron. He had many sons. These were the oldest. They were struck down in their prime. This is what we gather. Struck down in their prime. They were brand new, freshly consecrated. They were two men who had been honored by God before and were respected by all the people. See, Nadab and Abihu, if you go back into Exodus 24, they were actually the only two people outside of Aaron and Moses that were specifically named by God to come up to the mountaintop, essentially to have a meeting with God. 
Seventy elders were allowed to come, but those 70 elders weren't named by name. God had bestowed an honor on Nadab and Abihu by naming them by name and calling them to a special meeting. God had already chosen and honored these men. They were called to be there. What was their sin? If God had previously honored them, called them to this place, and then put them in a position where they were successfully consecrated. Now, on day one, we're going to offer worship. What was their sin that God would take their life in an instant? You know, we think about day one on the job. We all have had jobs, right? New trainee comes in, and we get to, we get to take time with them. Does anybody get upset when the trainee on day one screws something up? Not usually. Day one is usually the day for extra grace. You don't start really getting after your employees until, you know, we're, we're, we're well into the job and these mistakes shouldn't happen. So what was the sin of Nadab and Abihu that was so great that God took their life day one? The first moment, the first infraction. Well, I can promise you this. The Bible is absolutely crystal clear. Their sin was that they offered strange fire that God had not commanded them to offer. Now, if we look at, and this is the methodical approach to studying Scripture, was there any place prior to this where God had been giving His commands about the consecration and the order of worship where God had specifically said, you shall not use strange fire? Because it seems like that would be helpful, right? You think that Nadab and Abihu, if this was really something that was going to be dangerous, offering strange fire, maybe God told them already... And so that they just blatantly ignored him, did their own thing, tried to do something new. Most of the time in, in sort of the, you know, the academic world as they analyze this, they try to make it sound like Nadab and Abihu were trying to do their own thing. They were just bringing their own personal style and flair to the, to the act of worship. And I don't think that was the case. I don't think that was the case, and we'll get into that. See, nowhere previously in Scripture leading up to Leviticus 10 had God ever said only one kind of fire was allowed. He never said that. It's not recorded, at least. And yet, in the first moments of, of full consecration, they were consumed with fire. Now, remember, this is the same God, the same God that judged them with fire is the same God that we worship today. I want, I want us to remember that. The same God that took the life of Nadab and Abihu is the same God that you and I are worshiping right now by sanctifying His name. And the hearing of the Word is an act of worship. It's a primary act of worship in Scripture. The God that is listening to us remembers that day. The same God that judged with fire is the same God we worship now. In Exodus 39, they were told that they were not allowed to offer strange incense. But they didn't offer strange incense. In Leviticus 6.3, we're told that God ordered the fire that he had bestowed on the altar to burn the sacrifice was to always burn, never allowing to be extinguished. Well, indeed... The fire on the altar that day had not extinguished. And it would seem to students of the text that God had intended that they would make good use of this fire on the altar only. It would seem that God expected them to understand. God himself had sent the fire upon the altar and tasked them with keeping it constantly burning. See, the conclusion is, this is the conclusion that we take from this. The conclusion is that even though God never explicitly detailed that no other fire was to be used, that they were still expected to understand that if it wasn't God's own fire, then it was strange fire. This was their sin. 
They offered a strange fire back to the Lord after God himself had given his own fire. See, fire came from God. It killed them suddenly. And there was no, this is what's so strange to people and hard to understand is that there wasn't even a moment of opportunity for repentance or a time to consult with God over their error. How many times had Moses erred where God had a one-on-one meeting where things were brought to the Lord? There was time to analyze the mistakes. To God would dish out the punishment. Repentance would be had. Yet in this moment, there was no leniency. No time to consult, no time for repentance. Nadab and Abihu didn't even have time to realize they were wrong. It was over. This would seem harsh. Obviously, it would seem harsh to the father that watched this transpire. But in this moment of like just supreme vexation, what did Moses say? Most of the time when we have, when we suffer loss, we always have somebody close at hand to offer us something ignorant. Most of the time, right? Moses is in charge. This is his co-laborer in the priesthood. And he just watched his co-laborer lose his two sons who had been called to be there. This, remember, put yourself in Aaron's shoes. And what does Moses say? Shouldn't have done that. Nope. He didn't say. He offered the word of God back to him. He said, this is what the Lord said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Now, we don't know where God said that. But Moses tells us that God said that. And so at some point in time, God said that. It's recorded in Scripture. Moses quoted him. At some point in time, God spoke those words to Moses. And Moses did not offer his own wisdom, his own consolation. What did he do in this time of vexation? He offered the word of the Lord back to Aaron. Aaron, suffering with an immense tragedy, is offered a word of the Lord. And what are we told? Aaron held his peace. Aaron held his peace. Did not grumble. Did not argue. And we'll look more as to what that means here in a little bit. But if these words that God had spoken to Moses, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all people, I will be glorified. What does it mean for God to be sanctified? Because what Moses is indicating is that they, God wasn't sanctified. It's the reason why Nadab and Abihu were taken. So what does it mean for God to be sanctified? Well, it's the same word as hallowed. And I love that Natalie used that word in her prayer. It was a perfect lead up to this because hallowing the name of the Lord is the name of the game when it comes to the worship of God. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, so on and so forth. It means that God is saying, I will have my name appear to be holy, and I will make known to my people and to all the world that I am a holy God. That is what it means to hallow the name of God. Essentially saying, I will be sanctified, and I will be known by all to be a holy God. And in his judgment on Nadab and Abihu, he made it clear to all generations, all generations, those that were there, those yet to come. He laid it out in Scripture for us through special revelation. It's there for all time for the rest of the history of the church. It's there for us so that we know that he is, was, will always be a holy God. Leviticus 10, 1 through 3 is a supreme example of how seriously God takes the sanctification of his name. So what can we learn about how God sanctifies himself from what he's given us in Scripture? Well, we learn that God sanctifies himself in two ways. One, 
is by the holiness of his people and their conduct towards him, holding up God's glory before all people. First Peter 3.15, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Right? We're talking about personal piety, personal holiness. The holiness of his people that hold up his name and exalt him before all. Second, we see that as saints, we sanctify God in our hearts when we fear a holy God, showing him proper reverence and love. And when we sanctify him in the actions of our lives, not just lip service, we hold forth the glory of God's holiness to all the world. But if, this is an important point, but if we fail to do this, God can and still does sanctify himself by bringing judgment on those who do not sanctify his name in ways of holiness. What people don't understand is that when we draw near to God in worship, regardless of if we're there for the right reasons, if our hearts are right or not, or even if we do it in a perverted fashion, God will always be glorified and sanctified. What I'm trying to, uh, to get certain people to understand, even in my own life, is that showing up to church is not the important thing. A heart that is right before the Lord is what is important. A heart that is right before the Lord is going to come to church. Here's the flip side. Coming to church and engaging in acts of worship, you are drawing near to one who has promised that he will always be sanctified in those that draw near him. The only difference is he will be sanctified either by the holiness and the lifting up of his glory, or he will be sanctified in bringing judgment on those that come near him in a perverted fashion. And it terrifies me today to look at a church, like secular church, that's built sort of this seeker-friendly infrastructure. The whole idea is to let's just get anybody and everybody to come in and draw near to the Lord, regardless of if they're here for the right reasons. And we've built this beautiful infrastructure that we praise and say, look at the numbers, right? The, the massive amounts of this evangelical push. When in reality, if you look at what the Scriptures teach, we've, we've built a trap that's become a tool, I believe, of God's own judgment and condemnation of these people. In fact, I, it's funny, I, I have conversations sometimes. I had one the other day with somebody here, and it was very joking, but it's, it, it tied into a larger issue. Um, how many times have we seen people that began coming to church just to form friendships? How many people have we seen come to church just to form business relationships? You know, these things are incredibly dangerous. I will never invite somebody to church unless they're coming for the right reasons. And that might sound really weird, right? Like to the to, to sort of the modern world, we should get everybody in here. If somebody is searching or seeking, yes, I will invite them to church. But I've never recommended that somebody goes to church to further their own relationships. Because I know the act of that, drawing near to the Lord for a perverted reason, will only bring further condemnation. I love that person too much than to tell them to go and offer a perverted worship drawing near. I know who God is. I know what He's told me in Scripture. And He's not the guy that you want to draw near to unless you're doing it for the right reasons. He will always be glorified. Ezekiel 28.22 says, And thus the Lord God, and, and thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you of Sidon, and I will manifest my glory in your midst, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and manifest my holiness. Ezekiel 38.16, You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me, when through you, O God, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. 
Ezekiel 38, same thing. 23, Ezekiel 42, 13, same theme. Many, many places in Scripture talk about the vindication of God's holiness with the bringing of judgment on peoples. See, these are instructions for the priests, but it's a reflection of the careful approach all are supposed to take who deal in God's worship. God may as well be saying that those who draw near to me must take special care in doing so, and that those who sanctify his name must demean themselves while they hold up his name in worship. One of the reasons why today we do not like looking at the purity of worship is because it is demeaning to our own intrinsic human nature. Anytime you place yourself as a sinful human being next to a holy God, we look really bad. We feel really bad. There is no way to stand next to God and think highly of yourself. But in a narcissistic culture, we want to do everything that exalts ourselves. Most of worship today in a public setting, right? Most of what I'm saying today comes in the context of public worship, um, is very narcissistic. We're there for our own reasons. We're worshiping our own way, regardless of what God has clearly revealed in Scripture. Um, it's demeaning. See, to not demean ourselves before God manifests His judgment, thus sanctifying His name anyway. He's gonna have He's gonna have holiness. He's gonna He's gonna He's gonna sh- sh- His holiness will shine forth one way or another. So you must understand that God will always be glorified, both in our right worship of Him or in our perverted worship of Him. And we will be used either as holy people holding up His glory, or He will be glorified executing judgment on those that don't. Never forget that the same God we serve this day was there executing judgment on Nadab and Abihu. He remembers it vividly. He was there. This is the God we serve. Aaron learned that even though he and his sons were very dear to God, that God's own name was dearer to him than anything else. God will never have a passion for us that's greater than His own passion for His glory. And if we love what God loves, then we will love His glory too. So much so that we're willing to demean ourselves in the process as much as it takes. Back in verse 3 of Leviticus, right? We were told that Aaron held his peace. Man, this is hard to do. I have never lost a child. I know there are people in this room that probably have. I can't think of a time in my life where I've heard more guttural cries, raw emotion pouring forth in ways that could not be spoken than mothers who have lost children. Fathers who have lost children. Yet standing here in the presence of Moses after witnessing the death of his two sons, supremely vexed, we're told that Aaron held his peace. Now why? We were just talking about how God's own name was dearer to him than anybody else, right? Aaron here is given is quoted the word of God by Moses, and we're told that Aaron held his peace. Well, the word held his peace, for held his peace there indicates a whole lot more than just silence. When we say held his peace, it's usually he just went quiet. Aaron didn't just go quiet. There was something else indicated in the Hebrew there that's important. It indicates that Aaron's heart became peaceful. He didn't just go quiet. He didn't silently fume. He didn't walk out of the tent or whatever it was he was in. He didn't walk away and then start cussing and muttering under his breath. He wasn't angry. That word for held his peace, man, he was at peace. See, the vexation of his heart had been stilled. See, the storm that raged in his heart was quieted. See, the same God that can tell the waves to stop 
and the boat goes still is the same God who controls that ocean in our hearts. And in this moment, justice was done. God had done nothing wrong. God was not too harsh. Aaron hears the word of the Lord through Moses. And this word of the Lord, having been the one, the being that took his sons, it's hearing his word stilled Aaron's own heart. The very word of God stilled his heart and graciously preserved him from further vexation. To be honest with you, the Lord is so merciful that even in this moment of tragedy, the Lord stills Aaron's heart and keeps him from sinning against him. Here we see the the judgment of God issued immediately, but immediately we see the love of God bestowed, the mercy of God. So when we look at Leviticus 10, 1 through 3, the meaning and scope of it is this, that in worshiping God, it is necessary that we draw close to him. There is no true worship of God that does not involve us drawing near to him, right? And when we draw close to God, we should take special precaution that we sanctify his name. There is nothing else to do in the presence of God but sanctify his name. That is the entire purpose. If we do not sanctify God's name when we draw close to him, God, and I stress this, will still most certainly sanctify his own name upon us. So when it comes to the worship of God, there must never be anything offered to him but what he has commanded. So in regular daily affairs, when we go about life's daily events, right, we kind of have Christian liberty. We do what we want, right? We dress the way we want. We go, and this is, I'm not, don't, there's not a flip side coming and say, everybody needs to dress up next Sunday. But I'm saying we have liberty in what we do in regular life. As long as it doesn't violate the moral character of God, God has left us free to do as we wish. But when it comes to the things of worship, everything that we do in regards to performing worship must be founded on a command in God's word. God has made his mind clear to us on the matter of worship and everything we do in terms of worship must be rooted in his own will manifested to us and not an an ounce of our own liberty. We're not expressing our own will to God in worship. We're expressing God's will for what is required for his worship. Right? There's a, there's a demeaning aspect of it. We don't come into here. We don't walk. The concept of threshold is lost today, right? And in the back of my mind, and this has been present for a long time, I look at the, the threshold of those double doors as a separation between the common and the uncommon. When we walk through those doors and we take our place in here, doesn't mean we lose our joy, right? It doesn't have to be so solemn that there's no laughter and conversation, but there should be something in the back of our mind that designates that we are now coming into the presence of a holy God, And that this is an uncommon thing, not something to be taken lightly. And that what happens in this room in the public setting needs to be done in accordance with the commands of God and not just a reflection of our own will being expressed back to him. It's very dangerous because we today in this room sharing this moment together are engaged in an act of worship. And regardless, if I'm wrong and I'm doing this wrong up here, the Lord's name is still going to be sanctified whether I receive some form of physical fire or a spiritual judgment. The same thing is true for you sitting in, this, in those chairs. This day, your presence is going to sanctify the name of the Lord one way or the other. The Lord's name, we've drawn near to Him and He will be sanctified. Matthew fifteen nine says, In vain they do worship Me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. 
right? And Isaiah 29 says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Right? So he even expresses here in Isaiah that you can have an unrighteous fear of the Lord. It's the difference between sort of like natural, you know, natural fear of consequences. For instance, there are a lot of people out there that will grow upset because of the, they're scared of the consequences of sin. They're not upset by their sin because they violated the character of a holy God. A lot of times today, and this is where repentance, the nitty gritty of repentance comes into place. When you, when you're dealing with somebody who has something on their conscience, you can sometimes find whether they're just scared of the consequences of that sin, or if they're truly repentant in that they realize they've angered a holy God. Real repentance comes from understanding their relationship, our relationship to a holy God, not just scared of the punishment. And here we see that in Isaiah 29, that there are men engaged in acts of worship that only fear God because of things taught by men. It's not an actual fear of God himself. See, we all have much cause to be humbled by these teachings because this emphasis right now is on counterfeit worship. It, it stresses to us how easy it is to pay lip service without an obedient heart. Right? In, in worship, it's about an obedient heart. It's a lot easier for me as well to pay lip service, to go through the motions, but without actually having an obedient heart. And might I stress that grudging obedience is disobedience. God calls us to a cheerful obedience. So even if we come and pay lip service, but we do it grudgingly, it's disobedience. There's nothing that benefits him or us in this. Not in that. This is also known as false humility. To even draw near to God with an irreverent fear is great sin. False humility is fueled by self-deception. So we have to understand that when we draw near to God while lying about Him with our very thoughts, it's it's a grievous form of idolatry. You can sum up idolatry as this, worshiping a version of God that does not exist. If you have a version of God in your head that you are worshiping, that is the heart of idolatry. If you worship a God that you say, I never would worship a God that would send somebody to hell. That's, that, is, that is a heart picture of idolatry. We are to worship the God that is there, that has commanded us to worship in a specific way. It's very dangerous with false humility. Those that do this, the reason why it's dangerous is once again, and this is the point you're going to hear me stress over and over again, I don't want you to forget. If you remember nothing else, remember that God will sanctify His name. If we say at this point, right, that some of the things that we've lined out indicates that God's too harsh, especially when looking at the small, seemingly insignificant things of worship. Well, let's just look at back at Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. What happened there? Well, God made his mind clear that he does not ignore the little things in the execution of judgment. Uh, in 2 Samuel, we have another example where Uzzah thinks that the ark is fixing to topple, Right? This is that picture of, of they're moving the ark from one location to another. Something happens, an ox stumbles, and Uzzah, not a member of the priesthood, not allowed to touch the ark, God had made this expressly clear, reaches up just to stabilize it in good faith. There's nothing ignorant about this. There was nothing, well, ignorant, yes, but nothing intentionally uh, rebellious. Yet God had said, you're not allowed to touch the ark. What happened to Uzzah? He dropped dead where he stood. 
See, this is the mistake that Uzzah made. R.C. Sproul makes this uh, beautiful point in a book called The Holiness of God. Uzzah made the mistake of assuming that his hands were less polluted than the dirt beneath his feet. See, Uzzah assumed that the ark hitting the ground was more unholy than Uzzah's own hand touching the ark to stabilize it. God would rather have the ark come tumbling to the ground and picked up by those that he had ordained than for anybody not ordained to come along and offer their own assistance. That is a humbling lesson. That my hands outside of Christ are more polluted than the most vile, putrid thing on the earth. The dirt, right? The thing that makes us dirty and gives us infections. Where the creatures run and roam. All who enter public spaces concerned with the worship of God need to have a proper fear of God when we enter those places. So remember that God has given us special revelation about these matters in Scripture. And we're responsible for understanding these things even if we've never read or explored them. Ignorance is not acceptable innocence. When it comes to Nadab and Abihu, I don't think they were trying to do something new and revolutionary. I think that truly, I think they made a mistake. I think they made a mistake. But God makes it very clear that ignorance or incompetence in these matters is not innocence. He still held them accountable. And you and I are responsible for the right worship of God, whether or not we understand what that is. Thankfully, God has given us so much in Scripture, although it takes work to pursue and to learn, it's there for us. And it must be studied. There's nothing more important than understanding what right worship of God is. We must take God's expectations of us very seriously. He expects this of us. Jeremiah Burroughs notes this. And God, he's a 1600, he was an old Puritan, 1600 to 1646. Jeremiah Burroughs noted this. God expects this from you, that if upon examination of Scripture, one thing appears more likely to be his mind and will than another, you are bound to go that way, which is more likely. Not to double down on your own incompetence or your ignorance. Myself included, listen, i got a long history of doing worship bad. And the reason why I'm here today even presenting this is because in the process of God's grace and mercy, I've seen, wow, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. People need to know this. <laughs> you know, People need to know this. God takes it seriously. I need to take it seriously. And when you realize that you're responsible, even if you don't fully understand, that does provide some motivation to try to understand. Now, even though most of us only really have a lifetime's worth of experience with God being long-suffering with us, I mean, all of us have different church backgrounds. And I think that as you listen to the basics of what I'm saying, we can think back to our own experiences where maybe things were added in worship that really had no place being there. But... God did not strike us down like he did Nadab and Abihu. Now, I I don't have a lot of time to elaborate on this. But just because God has been supremely merciful with us in respect to offering wrong worship does not mean that God is obligated to continue to be long-suffering with us in this. He's not obligated to give us anything but justice. Most often today... God does not judge very quickly. 
But when he chooses to do so, he does. And we see that. Lots of mercy and grace, even offered many places in the Old Testament. Nadab and Abihu did not, did not uh, receive mercy and grace in that situation. It was an instantaneous judgment. And what I want to stress to you is that God, having been long-suffering with us in our own lives, is not an excuse to continue to perpetuate a style of worship that we know or come to know to be corrupt. It's not Just because God has not bestowed upon us what we deserve is not an excuse to continue to go forward. And, to be honest, I mean, today, we obviously, we don't expect fire to fall from heaven. If I was wrong in preaching heresy up here, and you know, I still wouldn't expect to be consumed with fire. But more often today, and I need to stress this, more often today, it's a spiritual judgment, not so much a fire, right? You can, there's a long list and a lot of things in Scripture that could be talked about that indicate that some of these spiritual judgments, even happening today, are far more significant, I think far more severe, far more eternal in nature um, than something like a fire falling from heaven. See, some churches have historically elevated duties of worship as holy and ignored the holiness of personal lives. Right, And there really is no such thing as the holiness of the act of worship it's itself. I mean, these things are holy when the heart is right with the Lord and offering those things in respect to the Lord. You've got to understand that God accepts the person before the action. And in Christ, this is possible. Right, The fact that any of our worship is acceptable today is because Christ is the only high priest that we have, and he is doing his job correctly. Right? We have much mercy and grace today. See, if you think that the emphasis is this doom and gloom sort of, woe is us, woe is you, you're not doing this right, I'm not coming to you with that sort of mentality. My mentality is, the Bible tells us how to do it. If we're doing it wrong, we need to change it. We need to at least care about these things. And it's only by the grace of God that God accepts our worship anyway, and he accepts the person before he accepts the action. So that when we begin to focus primarily only on the duties of worship we've missed the point that it's not the duties of worship only that god is concerned with he's concerned that your heart is right in performing them otherwise they are useless you can't go through any liturgical process and god said yes you read those words quite well thank you received worship received doesn't work like that you come and you say all the liturgy and all the right prayers and all the right words but your heart is corrupt before the lord and you hate him he'll still be sanctified just won't be because of your holiness lifting his glory up before the people he'll be sanctified in judgment as we talk about worship i want you guys to understand that there are three primary duties of worship commanded by god in the scripture okay and they are as follows the hearing of the word publicly which is what this is it's what Mark does. It's what Dave does. It's what Ryan did last week. It is receiving the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and it's prayer, public prayer. These are the three primary duties of worship that God has outlined in Scripture. Now, I don't want to get too lost in the weeds here, but I find it interesting that in sort of our modern mindset, right, the majority of emphasis in most of our churches today is on the entire uh, the the song culture, for lack of a better term. Most of the time in our modern vernacular, when we talk about going to worship, we're talking about going and singing songs to the Lord. 
And that's an amazing thing. That is an acceptable act of worship. We see many places where songs and music were offered to the Lord in Scripture. And the Lord received them because the heart offering those songs was righteous. He taught His own people songs. But you need to understand that the three primary duties of worship as Christians, especially in a, in a corporate setting, is the hearing of the Word, receiving the sacraments, and prayer. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are engaging in an act of worship. If you walk up to this table without knowing Christ or having a heart that is right with the Lord, this is an act of condemnation that actually will incur forms of judgment. We're told in the New Testament, it was specifically the Corinthians, that the Corinthians abused the Lord's Supper, and Paul tells us that it's the, their abuse of the Lord's Supper was the very reason why many of them were ill and some of them had died. That's an important verse that many people have gotten hung up on. That wasn't Nadab and Abihu. It wasn't 2,000 years prior. The New Testament, we have Paul acknowledging that an abuse of that act of worship had led to the illness and death of quite a few people in that church. We never approach this table unless we do it with a right heart before the Lord. This is drawing near to the Lord. And when we do communion together, God's name will be sanctified one way or the other, regardless of if we're doing it properly. Communion is essential in a church. In fact, it's so essential that if you go to a church that doesn't offer it, or abuses it, you have no business being there. And I'm very grateful for a church that holds communion in the place that God holds it, which is it is very important to do appropriately. The same thing is true of the hearing of the word. This is important. You guys are receiving a word from the Lord to you. This is an act of worship. If we show up and we sit in these seats and we have a grudging heart and we're on our phones the entire time, what we're telling the Lord with our hearts is that the world or something in the world has more of our hearts than He does. When we sanctify the name of the Lord, what we're telling God is that you have more of my heart than anything else in the world. That's what it means. So, and I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of getting bored in church. Very guilty. The point where I just pull out my phone for a brief second, check something, you know. Over the years, I've started to rethink that, you know, because God's name will be sanctified. Strange fire would include, um, uh, for instance, today if I brought this message and I was angry, I was angry about things, and I started throwing my own passion into the midst rather than just giving you the unadulterated word of God, that would be an offering of strange fire on my part. Be wary of the angry pastor. There's a lot of strange fire coming from that pulpit. Regardless of what he says is true. We could have avoided the whole Mark Driscoll fiasco of people that understood that foundational tool. Beware of the angry pastor. The prophets, the apostles, they never mingled their own wrath with the word of God. God's wrath is sufficient. These are key concepts. If we understand the nature of strange fire, we can avoid a lot of hardship. Jeremiah Burroughs was quoted as saying that the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. <clears throat> There's a lot more that can be said about types of strange fire, things that could be offered inappropriately. But today, the sole purpose of this is that we have been blessed, so much mercy and grace, that rather than God striking us down or bestowing upon us some form of spiritual judgment, that He's loved us, Northridge, to bring us together and tell us from Scripture 
give us an introduction as to the character and nature, not only of himself, but what's required for right worship. This is an immense blessing today. It's a gift from God that we can tackle this subject from Scripture, enjoy its truths, and have time to reflect this week on where our hearts are at when we cross the threshold into public worship, drawing near to God. God will sanctify His name regardless, but I, you know, it's one of those things where it would be far better for us to offer up His glory and His holiness from a point of personal piety rather than glorifying Him in our own spiritual destruction. It's amazing that He even gives us that kind of that kind of time, that kind of love, and that that to be able to look back and be retrospective about it. So I'm going to offer you guys a benediction. If you would stand, and in the fashion of this church, if you would please hold out your hands for receiving the benediction. Now may the same God of peace, who by the blood of the eternal covenant brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good that you may do his will while working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You guys are dismissed.